Well, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans this morning. So if you've got a Bible, grab it and open up to Romans chapter 1. And some of you may be saying, Romans, again, Romans. But hopefully most of y'all are saying, as we say in Texas, all right, all right, all right. Romans chapter 1, it should never get old. Romans, of course, one of the meaty letters that God has greatly used throughout church history. Brothers, sisters, spend time in Romans. Know it deeply. Have it have it saturate you. Know it deep down in your in your bones. As you as you know, many great men of God were transformed by the reading of this book. The greatest letter ever written. Augustine, of course, is converted with the reading of the book of Romans. Romans 13. He hears some some children and and he and he picks up the book and he, Rome, he reads in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Then, of course, Martin Luther, who said, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it, word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as though it were the daily bread of the soul. It is impossible to read or to meditate on this letter too much or too well. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And of course, many of you probably know Wesley was either converted or certainly revived by the reading of Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And then in our own day, it's amazing just how influential John Piper has been, especially on a younger generation. And many of you probably know that John Piper was a professor. If he would have remained a professor, his influence would have probably been much, much smaller. But as he's writing a book on the book of Romans, chapter 9, he feels the Lord speaking through the text saying, I will not be analyzed, I will be proclaimed. And John Piper goes to the pastoral ministry and writes and preaches, and, and uh, his influence is truly amazing in our day. So read Romans, read books on justification. You never can really say, oh, I've got that. You never can really say, oh, I can move on. As Paul writes in, in Philippians, he says, to write to you again about this same thing is no trouble for me and it's protection for you. So Paul understood the necessity of repetition in the Christian life. Long ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer noted that normally when we teach, we teach information that was previously unknown so that you don't have to teach it again, right? This is what school teachers do. You don't want to have to be repeating yourself constantly. He writes, it is of the essence of teaching that it seeks to render itself superfluous, but not so with Christian teaching. With Christian teaching, repetition is the very thing it requires. Paul tells Timothy, keep reminding God's people of these things in 2 Timothy. So pastoral ministry is not so much about saying new things, but saying very old things again and again and again in new situations. And we're a naturally forgetful people, aren't we? We're both a naturally and a spiritually forgetful people. I mean, you may have heard the joke about the, the elderly couple that were having dinner together, and it was a really, really good meal. And so one of them says, man, I haven't had a meal this good since that one restaurant down on 6th Street. What was the name of it? I can't remember. You know those, those things, those flowers that people give one another on Valentine's Day? It has the thorns. Rose, Yeah. Hey, Rose, what was that restaurant that we ate at that one time on 6th Street? You see, we're naturally forgetful, but we're especially spiritually forgetful. We need, to, we need to have the gospel pounded in our head. We need to hear it again and again, as Luther said, pounding it in our heads continually. 
Luther's people complained that he constantly preached the gospel. Luther, why do you always preach the gospel? Luther said, because every week you come in here like a people who don't know the gospel. Myself included. So if you think you've moved on, you've failed to really understand that we're prone to wander. And we're going to look at a very familiar verse, Romans 1, 16 and 17, which is the theme of the letter. So read with me. Romans chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The Word of the Lord reads, Now I want you to know, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now. In order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the good news, the gospel, to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Pray with me. Let's ask for the blessing of the Word of the Lord. Lord, thank You again for Your Word. We're uh, extremely grateful that You're not only the God who is there, but You're the God who speaks. And You've spoken and You've preserved Your Word, and we have individual copies wrapped in calfskin and, and leather and bonded leather, and we have many copies at home. What a blessing. What a gift that You have spoken and preserved, and we have freedom here to open it up and and spend hours looking at what You have said. Lord, I pray that You would bless this hour, bless these three days, that Your people would be shaped and formed like You've done for thousands of years by the Spirit. Shape and form Your people by the Word that we may go and be a blessing to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to make four observations. We're going to focus in on verses 16 to 17 and four observations. And the first is that the Gospel is the revelation of the gift of God's righteousness. I'm going to read 16 and 17 again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Gospel, of course, means good news, which assumes bad news. We are unrighteous. God is righteous. That's a problem. We should all know this. Look at verse 18. The problem begins to be addressed there. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So how can unrighteous people come to a holy and righteous God? The answer we'll see is we can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. But when we trust in Jesus, it's not mere forgiveness. We're credited with righteousness to positive status. It's incredible that we would be forgiven, for one, but to be credited with a positive status is all the more incredible. Look look over at Romans chapter 4. Some sweet gospel passages. Let's just read verse 5. Verse 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So the ungodly are declared righteous through faith. So how sinners can find a right standing before a holy God is the question that justification by faith answers. 
Now, hopefully all of us say, yeah, I understand that. But that's actually under attack today. Let me say that again. How sinners can find a right standing before a holy God is the question that justification by faith answers. And this flies in the face of the views of many New Testament scholars today. Uh, I love Carson. I also call, I mean, I call him Pope Carson. But I think Pope Carson's wrong when he says that the new perspective on Paul is something, a thing of the past. He thinks it's something that had its day sort of like the emergent church, but I, I couldn't disagree more strongly with that assessment of things. I think it's more popular than ever. I think commentaries are continue, continuing to be written from a new perspective, perspective. And I, uh, I was in a class in the fall. It was an elective. It was an end of elective. I was taking it for THM credit at Southwestern Seminary. If you know anything about Southwestern Seminary, it's very conservative. Typically very careful about such things, but I took a class. A professor will remain nameless to protect the guilty. But this was a elective, an MDiv elective for future pastors, right? On Pauline theology. Our, our textbooks where we read a section of I. Howard Marshall, and then we had N.T. Wright's Paul and Fresh Perspective, and then our main textbook was, take a guess, James D.D.G. Dunn. Pauline theology, theology of the Apostle Paul. And if you know anything about James Dunn, he is, he is the new perspective, pretty much. And I remember asking this professor at one point, I was asking about another book of Dunn's, do you recommend pastors reading in this other book about universe, unity and diversity in the New Testament? Do you recommend this to pastors by Dunn? And the professor said, no, I don't recommend anything by James Dunn to pastors. It would, it might confuse them. Yet it was our textbook. So it was a little bit confusing. This same professor, uh, actually, I, I asked him if he thought that Romans 2 uh, had an allusion to Jeremiah 31. And this professor said, remind me what Jeremiah 31 says. This is a Pauline scholar, so send your students to Southern, not Southwestern. So these are future pastors now, MDiv students. Now, some of you may know where we're at here. If you have an MDiv student who's probably not clear on these issues, because most of most MDiv students come into seminary without a Bible background. So they're coming in and they're learning about the Bible, and, and their, their introduction into the Apostle Paul is James Dunn. That's a problem. That's going to lead, if nothing else, it's going to lead to, to being unclear about the gospel. So I think the new perspective is not a thing of the past. I think it's going to continue to be promoted. It just fits our current cultural context, and many scholars are still uh, pumping out the literature. So when we go to talk about Paul and righteousness, we have to say something about the new perspective on Paul. We won't say much, but just a few things. And Steve West has a little booklet you can grab if you're interested in becoming aware of the issues. But I want to just summarize it in, in, in four quick points. What is the new perspective on Paul? Well, in many ways, it's new perspectives, plural. First and foremost, there, there are many. N.T. Wright is not James Dunn, emphatically so. So there are different new perspectives. But first and foremost, it's a new perspective on Judaism. So the, the main book, E.P. Sanders has said that we as Protestants have read the, the Jewish literature in the New Testament with, with Reformation lenses so that we're reading into the first century uh, legalism that actually wasn't there. So Jews actually weren't legalistic at all. It was a religion of grace and on and on and on. So it's a new perspective on Judaism, which is forcing them to reread Paul. Paul wasn't back combating legalism because legalism did not exist in the first century according to this new paradigm. So it's a new perspective on Judaism. When you do that, you have to redefine some things. So works of the law, ergonomu in, in Galatians and Romans, is no longer works that you obey 
no longer self-righteous works, no longer legalistic works, but just covenant badges. It's, it's what separated Jews from Gentiles, in other words, namely Sabbath, circumcision, food laws. So works of the law aren't good works that the Jews were doing. It was just what set them apart as being Jewish. That changes the way you read things. Justification then is no longer about being declared righteous before God, but it's about being declared a member of this new covenant community. So how would that look? Let's just think about one passage. Galatians 2.16, which basically says the same thing three times. It says, we're not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. When we read that, we, we read, we're, we are not declared in the right before God by good works, but by believing in Jesus. Right? That's a Protestant reading. Well, if you change the, the dynamic here like the New Perspective does, it would read more like this. We are not part of the covenant community, justified, by being Jewish, works of the law, but by faith in the Messiah or the faithfulness of the Messiah, depending on who you read. So you see the difference, right? It goes from, from being vertical, you're not declared in the right by works of the law, to you're not part of the community by being Jewish. So anyone can get on just through faith. It's not a, not a matter of being Jewish. So it changes the meaning quite, quite dramatically. So it's more about ecclesiology than soteriology. It's more horizontal than vertical. Well, let's ask, is there anything good that we can learn from the new perspective? I think so, actually. Uh, Michael Bird asked, asked some questions to help us Protestants think through some of the things we may have missed. And he has these four questions. And he asks this, why was Christ cursed on the cross according to Paul? The answer is, so the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles. Again, horizontal, redemptive, historical, not merely individual salvation. Number two, what comes after Ephesians 2.10 and good works? So you know Ephesians 2.8-10, saved by faith, not works, no one can boast, created, created in Christ for good works, God's workmanship. What comes next after Ephesians 2.10? Well, of course, the unity of Jews and Gentiles, right? Ecclesiology, in other words, the horizontal. In one body, it's the midpoint of Ephesians. Number three, what is the first thing imputed in Romans? Most Protestants would probably say, well, the righteousness of Christ. The answer is covenant membership in Romans 2. Gentile Christians, at the end of Romans 2, being regarded as the true Jew, the circumcision of the, of the heart. So again, covenant membership is the first thing imputed in Romans, horizontal. Number four, complete this phrase. We believe a man is justified by works of the law, or, and the, the completion is, is God the God of Jews only? So the antithesis is not legalism, but ethnocentrism, Romans 3.28. So there's truth. There's always truth to error. There's always a hint of truth. But it is true that there's a lot of aspects that the typical, again, I'm generalizing, the typical Protestant exegesis has lacked. There is an ecclesial component, no doubt nationalism and racism were a reality. Sometimes our tradition has not fully appreciated that background. Gentile inclusion is hugely important. We ought to be, most of us are probably not Jewish, we ought to be just as grateful to God for the inclusion of Gentiles into His plan as we are for the forgiveness of sins. Both are grace. But of course, the new perspective goes way too far. As Moose says, they foreground the backgrounds. 
They bring to the foreground what is actually just the background. What are some other things that have been helpful? Well, an emphasis on union with Christ. Uh, as we've gone back to the text, we've seen that we've got to be more careful with how we talk about justification and, and imputation. And union with Christ is getting a lot of airplay now. And part of it is in response to the new perspective. This is a good thing. This is a very good thing. Of course, Calvin said it long ago, but there are some who've, who've downplayed it. Now it's really back in the limelight like it ought to be. It's the hub of all the, the blessings of salvation. It's also brought us back to the text of Scripture, right? And that's always a good thing. It's brought us back to do exegesis. And this is what challenges to theology often do, is bring us back to the Bible. That's always a good thing. We become more clear. It also has brought us, maybe we've missed some of the corporate categories at times of Scripture. Now again, I'm generalizing, the Dutch Reformed tradition, Ritterboss and, and those in his stream have always had this, so there's always been faithfulness to it, but sometimes we've missed this. And so the new perspective has helped us see there are absolutely corporate categories. It's not just individualistic. So there's been some helpful things to remind us and to make sure that we are not minimizing themes in Scripture that are important. There is a lot of ecclesial components, not merely soteriological components. So we can be glad for that. But what are the problems? What are the problems? Well, first, it's reductionistic. E.P. Sanders and his, and his work that started it all, uh, it's just way too neat for the amount of literature that he covers. And it re, he reduces it down to fit his paradigm. And there's a 1,200-page book called Justification and Variegated Gnomism that uh, would make some very thrilling bedtime reading for you if you're interested in seeing just that. Sanders' paradigm is just too neat. The, the Jew, not all of the Jewish literature fits his paradigm. His whole paradigm of covenantal gnomism. So it's reductionistic in its survey of the Jewish literature. Again, which is the foundation for most of the exegesis. Folks who are building off of Sanders just, just conclude and assume that Sanders was right. And they go from there. So that's why the hard work by Carson and Seifert, they needed to do this hard work to show that Sanders' paradigm isn't to be assumed. Number two, it misses the point. The problem was not the Jewish misunderstanding of the law, you read that in Dunn's work again and again, they misunderstood. The problem wasn't their misunderstanding of the law, according to Paul. It was their failure to keep it, according to Paul. It was their disobedience to it. So they missed that point. Number three, it's utterly unrealistic. I mean, when you divorce academic theology from the local church, crap like the new perspective happens. It is utterly unrealistic. Works righteousness is not a human problem? Really? They would be the first, as Robert Stein points out, that if the first century Jews didn't struggle with works righteousness, they would be the first humans in human history that didn't struggle with works righteousness. They need to go spend a few days in pastoral ministry. They would have been the first human beings in history not bent on our default mode, which is self-salvation. This is why we need the gospel preached to us every day, because our default mode is self-salvation. To use Luther's categories, we're all theologians of glory every day, and we need daily grace to remain theologians of the cross. We all struggle with the flesh. The old Adam is edified by works righteousness, feeding on the elemental spirits of the world that Paul combats in Galatians 4 and Colossians 2. We forget grace daily. 
Luther pointed to one of Aesop's fables, and he says that we have what we need. We have faith, and we have the benefits of faith, namely Christ, through faith. But we get distracted like a dog with a chunk of meat in its mouth who sees his reflection and chases after the meat and then snaps at the water and loses both the meat and the reflection. So the problem is that these works these works were not just treated as boundary markers, but as the basis of misplaced confidence before God. Ethnocentrism is a form of self-righteousness. So it's unrealistic. Number four, it's non-canonical. So furthermore, the origin of the new perspective is from more of a liberal view of Scripture. Again, not the case with N.T. Wright, but with Dunn and others. Most have denied Pauline authorship of, of books like Ephesians and Colossians and the Pastorals, and this is significant. One of the linchpins of the new perspective is seeing works of the law, ergonomu, as Jewish boundary markers, namely circumcision, Sabbath, and food laws, and not human works in general. But those letters, supposedly not written by Paul, don't fit the paradigm. Let's look at a couple of those. Look, flip over to 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Flip over to Titus 3. Again, both of these apparently not written by most New Perspective advocates, not written by Paul. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not by works of righteousness... There we have different, not works of the law, but works of righteousness. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Flip over to Ephesians 2. We've already made mention of it, but let's read it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you're saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works. Again, not erga namu, just erga. Not from works, so that no one can boast. So that no one can boast. In the book by E.P. Sanders that started it all, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, 449 pages, there's one footnote on Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It doesn't even address it. Other than that, there's not a single mention of these three very clear passages. Neither is there a single mention in Sanders' later 630-page Paul, the Law, and the Jewish People, or in Dunn's Jesus and Paul, or in Wright's The Climax of the Covenant. These passages aren't even addressed. Dunn does, though, address it in his Pauline theology. And I want to read this quote. Listen carefully here. This is what he has to say. He's just made his case in this section I'm going to read from that works of the law aren't good works. They are boundary markers, okay? He's just made the case. He's attempted to make the case from various passages, Philippians 3 and Romans and Galatians. And then he says this about Ephesians 2. In all these cases, therefore, it is difficult to sustain the claim that Paul was polemicizing against self-achieved righteousness. Again, he's just said it's boundary markers, not self-achieved righteousness. 
Of course, the text just reviewed can be read that way. The only question is whether those who read them that way have shifted the issue from one of Israel's works of the law vis-a-vis Gentile acceptability to the more fundamental one of the terms of human acceptability by God. That may have happened already in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where the issue does seem to have moved from one of works of the law to one of human efforts. But when the text in the undisputed Pauline letters are read within the context of Paul's mission emerging from its Jewish matrix, the resulting picture is rather different. So you know the accusation. This started back in 1963 with, with the argument that we have, we have made Paul, we've modernized Paul. Paul and the introspective conscience of the West. Well, he didn't really deal with guilt. We've modernized Paul. And, and this is the argument. We've modernized him now to deal with stuff that we deal with, namely guilt. But back then that wasn't his problem. James Dunn just admitted that the modernizing of Paul happened as early as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So let's grant for a minute that Paul didn't write Ephesians. One of Paul's disciples read Ephesians. He just said that the issue had already shifted from boundary markers to the more fundamental issue of self-achieved righteousness. I hope you feel the weight of that. If Paul was modernized, it wasn't the 21st century, it was the 1st century, according to Dunn. I submit that the new perspective advocates are the ones guilty of modernizing Paul. Away with sin and guilt and blood. Replace those with community and unity. And dare not say anything remotely negative uh, towards the Jews. So Paul ends up sounding like a postmodern, post-Holocaust Protestant liberal. Surprise, surprise. But for those who bow the knee to all of God's self-revelation, the new perspective is not an evangelical option. We've got to take all of the canon... Uh, We can't dismiss those texts that don't fit our paradigm. Seeking justification by works is a universal human problem. So the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. God has provided His own righteousness to those who receive it. We're declared in the right by faith from first to last, from faith to faith. Faith is the instrument. Faith doesn't save. Christ saves through faith. Carson in his little book on Philippians has a great illustration of the Passover and he has names. I'm from Texas, so we'll use uh, Bubba and Archie at the time of the Passover. Bubba and Archie with exceptional Hebrew names. Both applied the blood. They had heard of Moses' instruction. They both applied the blood to the doorposts and the lintels, but, but Bubba's nervous and he really loves his son, Bubba Jr. And he's nervous and he's talking to his neighbor, Archie, and he says, Archie, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got it, but man, what if the angel of death's coming? I don't want to lose my son. If I lost my son, I would lose it all. I don't know what I would do. And Archie says, you know, I have a son too, and uh, Archie Jr., And uh, but did you put the blood on the doorpost? I did. I did, but I've seen crazy things and some of our people have been affected. And Archie just can't understand. Well, didn't you do what you were told to do? Did you put the blood up? Well, yeah, I did. Archie doesn't have any problem at all. He sleeps well. Bubba's up all night, but he wakes up. And which house did the angel of death pass over? Both. Both, because it's not the strength of the faith. It's the strength of the object of faith. Christ is the strongest Savior for even the weakest faith. We're not declared in the right by our doing, but not by our performance, but by the doing and performance of Jesus, and we receive it through faith. This is part of what Christ means. Remember, Christ is a title. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christos means Messiah, the representative one, the last Adam. 
As one New Testament scholar puts it, Paul's Adam Christology embraced not only Jesus' death and resurrection, it also embraced his life as a whole. Not simply that his death and resurrection were somehow representative, it was rather his death was the death of a representative person, a representative life. Let's read just some familiar gospel passages. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Luther said, no, I'm sorry, let's look at Philippians 3 first. He made the one who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Look over at Philippians 3.8 and 9. Again, rich, familiar gospel passages we ought to know by heart. Paul wants to gain Christ, the end of verse 8, verse 9, and be found in Him. Again, there's that union language. Justification occurs in union with Christ, just as we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, become the righteousness of God in Him. 3, 9, though, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, from, ek, from God based on faith. In Christ, we have all we need. In Him, we have all we need. It's like the ancient Roman son of a very rich father. You may have heard this illustration who had one son. He had lots and lots of wealth, but his son was an utter disappointment, rebelling again and again and again. He would entrust him a little bit. The son would squander it. He would trust him a little bit. The son would squander it. And finally, he started to get a little bit older, and he was fed up. And said, you know what? I'm not leaving anything to him. Anything I've given to him, he's squandered again and again and again and again. So I'm not leaving him my inheritance. He had a slave girl named Phileo that he loved. She was more like a daughter than a than a slave. And she was loyal and was a servant, and they got along so much better than the son. And the father decided, you know what, I'm going to leave it all to Phileo. You know, she's my real, my real child here, so I'm going to leave it with her. Well, he began to get sick and he got a little bit, he got a little bit soft as he was sick and said, no, nah, I've got to leave, I can't be that kind of father. I've got to leave my son something. I'll just give him one thing. Whatever he wants, whatever he wants, I'll give it. So he goes to his son and he says, son, I'm going to, I'm going to give you one thing, one thing of your choice. I'm going to, I'm going to leave the rest to Phileo. What one thing would you like? And the son said, I'll take Phileo. Because if he gets phileo, he gets it all. So it is with us toward Christ. Though we're wayward children, if we get Christ, we get everything. In union with Him, we are co-heirs with Christ. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 1. Another familiar passage. Notice that righteousness, the gift of righteousness, is found again in union with Christ. We get Him, we get it all. Verse 30, it's from Him that you are in Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Luther said, if I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. And all His is mine and all mine is His. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. Verses 19 to 24, again, 
wonderful passages I hope you're very familiar with. 319, now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a propitiation through faith in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraints, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less. The gospel is the revelation of the gift of God's righteousness. Number two, God uses this gospel. Second observation, God uses this gospel to save people. Look back at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. As I, I'm in a new church situation, I've been there since January, and uh, as I came to candidate, this was my text, because this is what I want people to know. I'm first and foremost a gospel preacher. Why is that? Because of this verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God. It's what He uses to save. One time there was this old vacuum cleaner salesman, perhaps you remember these, and he had traveled down to a farmhouse, and he had done it so many times, you know, he would just walk into a house, and it was like pushing play on a tape deck, and there goes the spill. There begins the spill of him sharing the gospel according to Hoover. And he tells the lady what all I can do, and it'd suck up anything you want. It would even suck up this very carpet if it wasn't nailed to the floor. And she tries to interject, and he just continues to go, and then he, as he's talking, he pulls out this, this handful of, of cigar ash and trash and he dumps it on the ground and she's a little appalled and tries to stop and he doesn't stop. He just keeps talking and says, it'll suck this up in less than two minutes or less, two minutes or less. And if not, I'll eat this stuff. And so he continues to talk and she goes to the kitchen while he's talking and she comes back in and he begins to try to plug it in and she has a spoon and hands it to him and says, we ain't got no power. Get ready to eat your cigar ashes. Got to make sure the product we're selling has power. There's no doubt with the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Paul knew it had power. He's unashamed because he knew that it had power. It's God's power for salvation. The gospel proclaimed is the instrument God uses to save. Is this not wonderful for preachers and evangelists? The gospel proclaimed is the instrument he uses. This is why gospel proclamation must always remain central to the Christian life. It is the main thing of first importance. God saves through this gospel is the second observation. Number three, this gospel is for Christians and non-Christians. Notice what Paul said in chapter 1 verse 15. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This was the other reason that I wanted to introduce myself to our church with this passage. You need the gospel as a Christian. Paul's eager to come preach the gospel to Christians in Rome. He wants to preach the gospel to them. Christians need the gospel of free grace placarded weekly. 
I think this is what Paul means when he tells us to do the work of a euangelistu. Do the work of an evangelist. I do think there's probably implications for unbelievers, but I think he's primarily talking about it in the church. We placard the gospel. He wants to preach the gospel to people who already believe the gospel because we need to hear it again and again and again. We relearn it daily. Luther said, One thing and only one thing is necessary for Christian life, righteousness, and freedom. That one thing is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ. Flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the message of God, which also works effectively in you believers. The message here is the gospel that works effectively in believers. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1, back a few pages, verses 5 and 6. Start with verse, we'll just read three to six. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope in the message of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. So the gospel comes, and the gospel bears fruit all over the world, and it bears fruit in the Colossians since the day they heard it, and it grows. So we need to be about gospel advancement to our communities, to the nations, and gospel advancement in our own hearts. Tim Keller, a good Bucknell alum, writes this, All change comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ. All change. And living out of the changes that, that come, that understand, that that understanding creates in your heart. Faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding, our identity, and our view of the world. Behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will be superficial and fleeting. The gospel is therefore not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Our problems arise largely because we don't continually return to the gospel to work it in and to live it out. End quote. So the gospel's for Christians and non-Christians. The gospel's for all who believe. It's inclusive, first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. Jews and non-Jews, everyone. This gospel's for everyone. Color doesn't matter. Social status doesn't matter. You can be American, Asian, African. You don't even have to be Texan. On my way uh, out of the church yesterday, I kid you not, told her, told a lady I was going to Pennsylvania, and here were her words. Quote, you better preach with a southern accent to those damn Yankees. End quote. <laughs> Pray for me if the Lord brings me to mind. I need to tell her, salvation's for all, not merely Texans. I love Ray Ortland's mantra in Nashville at Emmanuel. Their mantra is this, I'm a complete idiot. Because of Jesus, my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. 
That's the kind of culture I want to build in our place. We're not there yet. So what are some ways the gospel needs to be used in the Christian life? Praise God for the abundance of literature in the last five years, really, that's available. Let me just recommend a couple to you. Uh, J.D. Greer has a book called Gospel that's really good. Uh, some of Michael Horton's works is Christless Christianity or Gospel-Driven Life. Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. Uh, Jared Wilson has a couple books. Matt Chandler has an explicit a book called The Explicit Gospel. There's lots of more gospel-centered literature available today. I encourage you to read. And let me just put a footnote here. I encourage you to give away books. Make, make room in your budget to give away these sorts of books. Anytime I'm in a half-price bookstore, I'll go to the clearance and just pick up anything that's decent and try to be giving away literature. It's amazing how many people, I mean, how many of your own lives was shifted or, or moved because someone gave you a good piece of literature? A lot of us. So let's, let's, let's be intentional about passing out good books. No one reads anymore. They're not going to buy it on their own. So Pastor, I just got an email about two weeks ago from a brother who works offshore, so he was away, and I had picked up C.J. Mahaney's uh, The Cross in Her Life, a little bitty orange book. I picked it up for a dollar on the clearance rack at half price. I said, hey, while you're going, why don't you read this book? I just had it on the shelf of books I'd read. I got an email from him. I should have brought it. I got an email him, and this guy's been walking with the Lord for five or six years, been a Christian. But his email was just so encouraging because of this little book. He said, for the first time, I'm actually seeing the sufficiency of Christ. All this time, I've been working, and I've just been guilt-laden, even though I'm a Christian, and this book has helped me see that the cross is central. I get it. Super encouraging. All I did was I paid one buck, gave him the book. So let's be about passing around this gospel-centered literature. Read it and pass it along. So what are some ways, though? What are some ways that the gospel can be used in the Christian life? Well, I think there's a lot of ways. We'll just, we'll just look at a few. First, think about relationships. How does the gospel apply to relationships? Well, the gospel of guilty sinners being declared in the right through faith has relationship-transforming implications. Just to make one point, if you really own the gospel, and I think everyone in here gets it up here, that's not the issue. The issue is really owning it, getting it deep down in your bones. When you own the gospel, if you own the fact that you're first sinner and you're only saved by grace, you'll be more gracious and humble in your relationships. You'll be more gracious because the person who knows how desperately they themselves need grace will be quick to give grace. If you know yourself how desperately you're in need of grace, you're going to be much more quick to give grace to others. You'll be humble because you'll see yourself first as sinner and only then as sinned against. In conflict, let's think of how reconciliation would happen if we saw ourselves first as sinner, then as sinned against. That's huge if you own it. It transforms relationships, graciousness and humility. What about criticism? Well, if you're a pastor, criticism is our daily bread. How many of us, though, get all up in arms about being criticized? Well, again, when we own this gospel of free righteousness, if this is our theme song, we'll be much less defensive and all up in arms about criticism. Someone will say, hey, Jack, I'm tired of you being a jerk. And you'll no longer react by asserting your greatness and how you're not a jerk. But you'll say, you know what? I am a jerk. In fact, you don't even know the half of it because you just heard what I said. You didn't see what I thought. <laughs> say, I am. I am. I am a sinner who deserves judgment. But God has granted me the gift of righteousness. So I can agree and I can look for truth in your criticism and I can apologize for my part of being a jerk. You see, when, when God's approval is set... The approval of man becomes tiny. It becomes gnat-like. So criticism bounces off of you. 
because you know what matters. You become free, as Tuli and Vision puts it. You're free to fail because Jesus won. You're free to be a loser because Jesus is a winner. You're free to be weak because Jesus is strong. You're free to be subpar because Jesus is superb. You're free to not have it all together because Jesus does. So the gospel can give us a steel backbone where criticism doesn't debilitate us. What about trials? How does the gospel affect trials? Well, trials, when they come, not if, right? When they come, we know that it is not God punishing us. Maybe disciplining us, never punishing us, because Jesus has borne the penalty we deserve. And God no longer sees us as sinners, but as righteous. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. No condemnation. God is well pleased with us because our life is hidden with the Messiah. When He sees us, He doesn't see our faults. He sees His Son. And He's well pleased with the Son. So when we stand on that solid rock, storms will come. Storms may come, but we won't be shaken. When God is for us, who can be against us? When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Martin Luther again, you can tell I like Luther. He said we should pray this way. Sin sickness, sin poverty, sin losses, sin crosses, sin persecution, sin what you will. You have forgiven me and my soul is glad. So the gospel has many practical applications for all of life. Greer in his book Gospel says, The gospel is not merely the diving board off of which you jumped into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. So keep going deeper into it. You'll never find the bottom. Carson also illustrates if we really get the gospel with uh, two different days in his own life. And so think about my life. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new pastor again at a, at a very Southern Baptist church. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, 100 years old. I'm the 33rd pastor in 100 years. So, I'm also the, the daddy of three. I've got a four-year-old, two-year-old, and a six-month-old. So, two days in my life. The first day, I, I sleep wonderfully. I've got three kids, three little kids, but I sleep wonderfully. Seven, eight hours. It's one of those days where you just wake up. And I remember the night before to start the coffee. So, you just wake up before your alarm and you can, you can smell the aroma. And you know, if you're a guy, we often like to stop the alarm before the bomb goes off, you know, before the bomb detonates. I'll stop the alarm one minute before it goes off, and I just feel good, rested. I get up, and I have plenty of time in the Word and prayer, and my heart is strangely warmed. I just have a sweet time with the Lord. I'm able to pray before the family wakes up. And I I get ready, and uh, I come out, you know, out of the shower, and I'm dressed, and Alicia had been up, and she cooked a warm breakfast. The kids are there in their seats. They're being quiet. We eat breakfast. I go to work. I'm there early. And I'm just extremely productive in sermon prep. Within two hours, it's like just the homiletical outline just fell off the text. So I'm way ahead. It's Monday at 11 o'clock. I've got where I'm going. I have a lunch meeting with a guy that I've been trying to disciple and went over. And he's, he's very close and he's encouraged and he, he wants to meet again. And, and, and the waitress recognizes me and says she's going to come to church. And so I'm, I'm encouraged. I have a couple meetings in the afternoon and they just come to, to say, Pastor, I'm so glad for your labor in the text. I'm so glad that you want to spend hours in the study so that you can faithfully feed us with expositional preaching. And I say, oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. And she leaves. Another one comes in and says this very same thing. Pastor, I loved how you pointed out that the purpose clause of Philippians 3 has so much relevance for the way I live my life. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. So I'm feeling good. I go home. 
And I come in, and the kids, great, you know, they're very glad to see me. Daddy, Daddy, give me hugs. And I whirl them around, and we play and wrestle, and Alicia cooks a wonderful meal. Steak and wine, or grape juice. And we enjoy a, we enjoy a meal together, and the kids want to, they want to go to bed early. I said, okay, but we want you to read the Bible first. So we read the Bible. My four-year-olds are asking pointed questions, and we pray together. And they skip off to bed, 7.30, have some good time with my wife, go to bed, and on on the pillow, I just feel great. And I pray, and I bust out the King James language. Oh, Heavenly Father, bless all Thy people for Thy goodness. God bless everyone. Thank You. And I go to bed. Day one. Day two, I have three young children. I don't sleep at all. Crying, nightmares, Curious George fell out of the bed, on and on. I finally get to bed. I can't, I can't go to sleep though, so I finally fall asleep. 5 a.m., my alarm goes off at 6 a.m. I feel terrible, can't get up, push snooze, late to work, didn't get breakfast, didn't get time in the Word and prayer before I got to work. I get there, I'm just foggy headed, I can't, I can't get anywhere with the exegesis of the passage, and then I have these unplanned meetings and criticism. Pastor, why'd you get rid of the altar call? Don't you know this is the Baptist way? What are you doing here? How are people going to get saved? And I try to explain to no avail. Another person, how come you're always in the study? Don't you know you need to be visiting us? Okay, goes. Another one just barking and barking, and I have lunch, and it's someone leaving the church. Secretary's having a bad day. Go back to the office. Totally unproductive. Go home, walk in, step on a Lego, first thing. Those landmines if you have little boys. Kids are just acting like little demon-possessed raccoons. And I just send them to bed. Just go to bed. Daddy, it's only 4.30. I know. Go to bed. Terrible evening. Alicia, my wife, is just frazzled. So we have leftovers, and as she's warm, reheating the leftovers, it burns. I kick the dog. I go to sleep. I put my head on my pillow. Father, God bless everybody. Amen. Day two. So on which day, though? On which day was I more loved by God? On which day was I more accepted by God? Day one or day two? See, both are rooted. Both of my contentment and my rejoicing and my stability are rooted in my own performance and circumstances, aren't they? It shows that we don't get the gospel when we're driven by external circumstances. In many ways, God probably loved me more on day two because of His strange work of working through trials and using suffering and and purifying in that way. Well, if we don't get the gospel, we will be driven by our surrounding circumstances. But when we get the gospel, come what may, both days we're we're going to bed rejoicing in the Lord because His He is the solid rock. His grace is unchanging. And the fourth observation is that when we grasp this gospel of grace, we become unashamed. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He wants to go to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed. He's Notice it's because the gospel is the power of salvation. And we all know what it's like to be ashamed. We try to avoid it. And it starts very early. This this feeling of There's just a terrible feeling of shame. It starts in junior high, especially when the opinion of peers matters way more than it should. I recall very distinctly being my first real sense of shame. I grew up out in the country in Texas, and oftentimes critters would get in your house. We had squirrels in the attic, and one time a skunk got under the house and sprayed. 
And when that happens, your whole house is, is just covered in stench. Sprayed multiple times. Well, we had a, thankfully, we had a local guy who would deal with varmints, and his name was, his name was Lizard. <laughs> True story. So we called Lizard. Lizard, we got a skunk. Can you come help us? We go to my grandma's. We wash everything, wash all the clothes, you know, and get ready to go to school. We have school the next day. Well, I go to school and, you know, very nervous about smelling like skunk. Uh, but I was covered. We'd covered everything. Well, I go and we open up our books. The one thing I didn't account for, books that were on the floor. So I even had a different book bag. Didn't bring the bag. Get out the book. As we open the book, those pages, whew, the whole class just smells like skunk. Well, there was a guy named Luke in that class who had had the same thing happen to him before. He had had a skunk spray under his house. He didn't have the maybe the parents, to go and wash everything. So he came to school smelling like skunk really bad. So as I open the pages, the pages just, and everybody says, oh, Luke. And you know, I'm just shamed, thinking, oh, dear, the last thing I want people to know is me. So I say, oh, Luke, come on, man. And I go with it. So we know we know the shame. It starts very early. But we even know shame being ashamed of the gospel. Think about it. Why don't you share the gospel with your family members? Some of the hardest people to talk to. Why? Most of the time, we don't share the gospel. Most of the time, we are ashamed of the gospel. It's because we don't believe in its power. If we did, we would become unashamed. Think about it. You are righteous before God because of Jesus. You have nothing to fear. The Creator is pleased with you. The Creator. You stand faultless before the throne. When He shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in Him be found. Philippians 3. Dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. Come what may, God is for you. The rest of the world can say Christianity is outdated, irrelevant, only for weak people, only for arrogant people, for the narrow-minded. doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're unashamed. Who cares what others think? We, we know the truth of our standing before God. The opinions of other people become like the opinions of gnats. We just brush them off. And of course, Paul's the best example of this, isn't he? Remember in Acts 16 where he's, he's, he's arrested, he's beaten with rods. We often just read, read right by that. Beaten with rods. And then imprisoned. And does he, does he sulk? Does he have a pity party? Why me, Lord, how could you let this happen? No, he has an all-night worship session and sings praises and praise and the jailer ends up being saved. Paul was unashamed. I once heard Matt Chandler talk about how frustrating Paul must have been to the enemies of the gospel because they say, hey, we're going to kill you. And he says, to die is gain. So, okay, we'll let you live. To live is Christ. We'll lock you up. Well, then the guard's going to get saved and we're going to sing praises in the cell. We'll beat you up. Well, the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed. You just couldn't shake the man because he was founded on the solid rock. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. As we sing, I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it'll be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story. It'll be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Pray with me.
Father, we're grateful to you for this gift of, of righteousness. I pray for us to understand it in our heads, especially those of us who preach and teach. We need to be clear on the gospel. Pray that we would do the hard work of understanding your word, but also pray for all of us who do understand these things in our head, that we would live gospel-centered lives. I think Tim Keller is totally right that so many of our problems arise because we haven't beaten the gospel deep down into our hearts. So do that this week. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Cause us to be gracious and humble because of how gracious you've been towards us. Thank you for loving us first. We love you in return. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ever one God. Amen. microphone. It's not just so that we can hear you, but so that recorded messages can be heard. Also, uh, when you get up, uh, please just state your name and where you're from. Uh, again, we're streaming this, so we want to hear where everybody's from and, and get all the information. Uh, and then state your question. I know that often we like to uh, prep our questions with long dissertations and uh, you know comments of our own. Try and keep those to a minimum and keep them focused on the topic at hand. Uh, so that that will help lead into the question. Keep the question brief to the point. Let someone else come on that. So I'm going to have Blake stay here, and we'll allow you to take some time to ask some questions of our speaker. Gary George from Massachusetts. Um, Blake, what I don't understand, new perspective proponents... Do they necessarily uh, object to the Pauline authorship of certain books? Is there some reason why they would propose that? Yeah, um, I'd say in the New Testament Academy, outside of evangelicalism, most deny the authorship of uh, several of them, but Colossians, Ephesians, certainly the pastorals, for various reasons. Uh, some of it's uh, writing style, some of it's theology, that they view the theology in some of these later letters as in contradiction. I remember reading Richard Hayes' book on ethics, and uh, Richard Hayes is an egalitarian, and he came to the question of gender, and in First Timothy 2, where I forbid, Paul says, I forbid a woman to teach, and, and Hayes just says, Paul could not have written that. The Apostle Paul could not have written that, and he based that on a certain reading in Galatians 3, 26 to 29, where there's no male or female. So uh, it's mostly critical scholarship, and the new perspective has come from mostly critical scholarship. I always want to say that's not N.T. Wright, though. N.T. Wright is much closer to us than these other guys, especially as of late. If you read his book on justification versus his book, What St. Paul Really Said, he's come closer and closer. I haven't yet read his Big Daddy, it's a 2,000-page book, but uh, he... Uh, He's closer, so so it's careful. I want to be careful not to lump them all in the same in the same category. Dunn, I forget. I think Dunn affirms the authorship of Colossians, but not Ephesians or the Pastorals. So it's mostly just critical scholarship, and and it's uh, probably the majority in terms of non-evangelical New Testament scholars. And just to, as Jack's coming, I was shocked when I read that in Dunn's book about Ephesians 2. I mean, what an admission on his part to say, basically, the old perspective started in Ephesians 2. That was huge. If I were him and I had his agenda, I'd have left that paragraph out. <laughs> like the others do. They don't even touch on those passages. So, 
Jack Jeffrey from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, Blake, I believe this is a quote. Uh, I just want to give proper credit either from you, but I think it may have been from Keller. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. That was a quote from who? I, I usually don't bring footnotes and sermon notes, but because Jack was in attendance, I brought footnotes and sermon notes for just... Oh, you know what? I just lied. It's in my other talk. I don't have footnotes in this one. Yeah, I think that one's from Prodigal God. Okay. Yeah. And I just a, a appreciation, that was probably one of the finest analyses of the pers new perspectives that I have heard in short span. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Not easy to do. There's a lot to say. Appreciate that. Jeff Burns from Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, how would you respond to maybe someone like Carl Truman and some other types who are saying uh, effectively, if everything is gospel, then nothing is, and kind of overloading gospel-centered everything to where, um, especially real recently, Gospel Coalition came out with uh, every square inch and gospel-centered baking, gospel-centered uh, modeling careers, gospel-centered lawyering, and just kind of... Maybe stay here. I'll see if uh, okay. I'm not sure exactly. I haven't read that, so I don't know what Truman's Truman's thing is. But in terms of this gospel-centered movement that we can be grateful for, there's certainly errors. If any of you followed any of the debate, you can basically summarize the debate between, if you look at the blogs, basically between a Tulian Tavision and a, and a Kevin DeYoung, or uh, a Horton and a Ferguson, or in some ways Luther and Calvin. In some ways. Uh, so yeah, there is a danger. We've always got to be careful. As New Covenant folks, we tend to, uh, well, I guess it just depends. Everyone's different, but we, we tend to not have as much problem because we talk a lot about the imperatives of the New Covenant in terms of obedience. Now, I don't know if that's the question you're heading towards, but I think there is a danger of, of making it cliche. I mean, I remember being part of a church in Louisville where we did gospel-centered hospitality. And my question, what is that exactly? I'm open to it. Just tell me what it is. What does it mean to have gospel-centered hospitality? And I think they meant this whole idea of Jesus Christ giving himself for others as the model, which I'm all for, uh, but that's not the gospel, that's the implication of the gospel. So I'm not, sure, uh, not sure if that answers what you're asking. Let's just be real. I always want to be clear and define what we're talking about instead of just throwing around labels because there is a lot of gospel language. It's the new thing right now, gospel hyphen. Margie Harriman, Watertown. I love what you have said, but I especially love your quotes. So I hope you have footnotes. <laughs> what was the one we are free? Uh, we're free to fail because Jesus won? Yes, that one. Um, that's from Tulian Chavidjan's book. How do you spell that? Tulian is just T-U-L-L-I-A-N. Chavidjan, I don't know. That's the one. <laughs> um, what book is that? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's right. That's from okay. that one. And I don't agree with everything in that book, just okay. so you know. This is a good quote. I want okay. to give him credit. Good quote. And good quote on Paul's response. Where did you get that one from? Paul's response to, to enemies? Uh, yeah, that to was everything. A, that was a sermon. Uh the one where if you if you kill me to die yeah. is getting that was a sermon from Matt Chandler I don't remember Matt which one Chandler. 
Matt Chandler sermon, yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Matt Chandler is the president of Acts 29, pastors kind of in the Metroplex area. Oh, he did? Okay. Okay, there you go. Together for, this, the, together for the Gospel, Matt Chandler mentioned that quote. So go to t4g.whatever and listen to Matt Chandler's talk. Anything else? Thank you.